Well, would you turn back to Philippians chapter 1, page 1178 in the Red Bibles, uh, and let me pray. Before we go any further, I can see a lot of smiling faces around the church. At least that's a good sign. Lord Jesus, speak to us this morning and give us new, renewed courage in the things that matter most. Confidence in you for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, Paul is in prison uh, and he's facing execution. Whether it was in his period of perhaps his most intense conflict, that was in Ephesus. It was uh, about 55 AD. Looks like he was in prison there at the time. Or, or whether it was nine years later in AD 64. Uh, he was in prison in Rome. Uh, and the Emperor Nero scapegoated the Christians at the time for the fire that raged in Rome. He literally torched them. Paul's on death row. And he's acutely aware that this may be the end. So he writes to one of his favorite churches. And astonishingly, as we saw last week, if you were here, he pours out not his woes, but his praise. And then his prayers, not for himself, but for them, the Philippians, and not for release from persecution, but for a release of God's love. Well, now comes his vital message. Look with me at verse 12. Now, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, do you see there's something he wants them to know? And it's this. What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Uh, the rest of the chapter, you might say the rest of the letter, is an expansion of this one thing, the thing he wants them to know. And there's a note of surprise in it. They might have imagined, in fact, it seems some of them were saying, that what had happened to Paul, his troubles and difficulties and conflicts, had served to hinder the advance of the gospel had served to pour doubt on the gospel message itself, had discredited Paul as the gospel messenger. He brought the good news of Jesus to them in Philippi in the first place. Instead of which, Paul says, no. Surprisingly, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It reads as if Paul himself was even surprised. The trials and conflicts, the imprisonment, they hadn't dampened or discouraged his confidence, but reinforced it. Now, before we look at the three things that had happened to him, do you notice that those things were not the important focus of his attention? His focus is not on his situation, but on this thing, the advance of the gospel. Uh, the gospel, the word means literally good news. And it's the gospel advance that's the main thing and his chief concern. This good news is the good news of Jesus. In our terms, the great news that through Jesus and his death for us, there's a way home to God. Now, Paul's already mentioned the gospel. Uh, do you see in verse 5 above, he talks about their gospel partnership, their, their teamwork together in this all-consuming project. In verse 7, the gospel confirmation, the proof of it, that had actually been working out in real experience. 
And now in verse 12, the gospel advance, its growing impact on more and more people. And in verse 14, the gospel proclamation. Those who were gaining more and more confidence to share it. But the gospel is the main thing. Paul is nuts about the gospel. For him, the main thing was to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing was the advance of the gospel. It's not the only thing. But it's the main thing. Paul is concerned about other things in this letter. He's concerned about his friends, like, cast your eye over to the right-hand side of the page, Epaphroditus in chapter 2. His poverty of health. He was sick. He's writing about a collection for poor Christians, and he would have been as desperate as we about food poverty. He's concerned about social well-being. And if you turn over the page in chapter 4, these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who were suffering relational poverty. And so he asks, verse 3 of chapter 4, my true companion, that's quite possibly Luke, help these women, mediate between them. But his greatest concern was about gospel poverty. You see, why was it so desperate that those two women were in conflict? Well, not just for their own sakes. Not just for the sake of the community around them. But because, look at it in verse 3, they had been, Paul says, contending by my side for the gospel. They'd been fighting for the gospel, but instead they were now fighting each other. That was what was so desperate. Yes, for them... But it's the gospel that mattered most. So Paul is writing his letter to tell them that there's good news and it's spreading. The advance of the gospel, the remedy to gospel poverty, was the key, of course, to meeting all the other poverties. It's the gospel remedy that has inspired IJM. That's the thing that lies beneath it and infuses it and follows it up. That tremendous work. It's the gospel that permeates and pervades it. And so Paul writes about this thing that he wants them to know. Not the gospel itself. They already know that. But the advance of the gospel. In and through and despite everything that was happening. So what is this advance of the gospel? It sounds rather general, even abstract. But actually, it's quite simple. The advance of the gospel is simply more people coming to know Jesus. That's it. It's not general. It's particular. It's not abstract. It's concrete. It's human. It's individual. And it's personal. Think of an army on the march, because this word advance was sometimes used of an advancing army. An army gathering recruits along the way. In 1745, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender, landed at Glenfinnan on the west coast of Scotland. I've been there. I've seen the flag that's still flying there today. He arrived almost alone, 
and as he headed across the country, he attracted followers. He took Edinburgh, he marched south, amassing an army. By November, he was marching at the head of 6,000 men. They took Carlisle, and the army continued to advance, both in distance and in numbers, more and more following Prince Charles. As far as Derby, where it all went pear-shaped, if you know the story, he was driven back north and defeated at the Battle of Culloden. Now, the Gospel army is advancing. More and more people coming to know Jesus, joining his church army. Unlike the Jacobite rebellion, nothing can stop the gospel advance because Prince Charlie was the young pretender. By the way, if you're a Scot here today, you may be seeing this in a slightly different perspective, and I do apologize to you. Maybe I should say, whether or not Prince Charlie was the young pretender, Jesus is the rightful king to the throne. His gospel is advancing because the gospel is Jesus himself. And nothing can and nothing will hinder him or halt his march. The advance of the gospel, it's bigger, it's more powerful, it's more assured than anything. And that's the chief burden of his letter. Now, it's bigger than these three things. Number one, opposition from the world. That was the first test. But it couldn't halt the gospel advance. Look at verse 13 with me. It's become clear, Paul says, throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Now, the palace guard were a hand-picked imperial division. In Rome, there were 9,000 of them. They had double pay, pension provision, special duties. They were veterans drafted to Rome because they could be trusted. They were the hardest men in the Roman Empire and the ultimate expression of the emperor's authority. If there was a riot, the Praetorian Guard went in. They were incredibly intimidating, killing machines who would have killed many, many people. And one by one, these military guerrillas were chained to Paul, and each one heard the gospel. Can you imagine what they said after their duty? I've just had three hours of him, from Genesis through to Revelation. It's your turn, in you go. And one by one, over two years, they saw that the only chains that bound Paul were the chains of his love and his loyalty to Christ. He'd become famous throughout the whole guard. Even his imprisonment couldn't hinder the advance of the gospel. Instead, his prison officers had come to know the gospel. And the point is this, that Paul was prepared to lose his freedom if thereby the gospel gained a greater freedom. He knew that he wasn't there by accident. God hadn't lost control. No, he says in verse 16, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. God put me here. Uh, it was a word that could be used of a sentry on duty. Stationed here. 
So do you see, that's how Paul thought. These soldiers think they've been stationed here to guard me. Now I've been stationed here to gospel them. And so that inspired, verse 14, most of the brothers and sisters. They hadn't been intimidated or discouraged or caused to stumble because of Paul's chains. He says they become more confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul, in other words, was prepared to be silenced if more of his brothers and sisters were more confident to speak. They said, well, if Paul's not ashamed of his chains, why should I be? Notice, not all of them, but most of them. You see, there's the reality. In every church, in every congregation down through history, there will always be some who are unsettled, even gagged by the whiff of society's disapproval. But I think the question for us is this. Do we see ourselves as Paul did? We may be thinking that where we are, our situation at the moment, may not be ideal. It may not be our first choice. It may not be seemingly positive for a Christian witness. But do we say, no, I'm put here. It's God's plan for me. And he can use me right here where I am. And the test, I think, for this is that we keep on speaking. Whatever my circumstances, God is boss, and I will keep speaking. Or secondly, competition in the church. It appears that some on the Sunday preaching rotor, whether it was in Philippi he was writing to, or in Ephesus or Rome where he was writing from, some, look at verse 15, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, verse 17, out of selfish ambition, insincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Can you imagine it? Envy, rivalry, insincerity, selfish ambition, ambition and troublemaking, and it was in the church. And what's more, Paul himself was being slandered. Paul who had brought them the gospel, who'd founded their church, their spiritual father in the faith. They were trying to humiliate him and kick him when he was down, to eclipse him and to steal the hearts of his followers. His reputation was in tatters. And he could do nothing about it. He couldn't write to the Rome Times. He couldn't sue or launch a media campaign in his defense. He couldn't go in person and put the record straight. But hey, what? Look at verse 18. He says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. The gospel of Christ, you see, it's again and again. That's the important thing. And because of this, I rejoice. You see, he didn't care that his reputation was solid. He was only concerned for the honor of Christ. 
He knew, he believed, he was confident that even splits in the church can't stop the gospel advance. It's bigger than our external opposition. It's bigger than our internal conflicts. And again, the test for you and me is this. Have I, am I prepared to, have I risked my reputation maybe in the last few months? Have I during 2019? And will I as Christmas approaches in the end of this year? Thirdly, it's bigger than our personal struggles. For Paul, the biggest was the struggle between life and death. And I suppose you can't have a bigger struggle than that. And out of his mouth comes the most extraordinary statement. If it's life, well, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. He's everything. If I'm to go on living in the body, it will mean fruitful labor for me and for your benefit. If it's death, well, to die is gain, even better. He says, if I had the choice, I know what I'd choose, verse 23. And here's the most challenging thing for us. Would we ever have taken this choice? My desire is to, be, is to depart and be with Christ. Better by far. But my hunch is, he says, verse 24, that it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body, continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. That word progress is the same word as the word advance at the beginning. Advance, advance, advance. So he says, I'm torn between the two. But either way, it's a win-win situation. And meanwhile, verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And what's the test for us here? The test for most of us is not whether we're prepared to die for Christ. That's given to very few in our context to face. Now, the test is not whether we're prepared to die for Christ, but whether we're prepared to live for Christ. So these three, external opposition, congregational strife, personal inward struggle, Paul says the gospel advance is greater, it's more important, it's more powerful, it's more effective, it's more central than everything else. It's the main thing. So as I close, the question I ask myself, and indeed all of us, is this. Just take those words he uses about the gospel, those four words. Are you and I a partner? A partner with others in the gospel? Are you and I confirming the gospel? The question is not whether we've been confirmed. I've just been talking to Marcus earlier. Uh, Marcus was told that to be ordained, he needed first to be confirmed. A very odd idea. The question is not whether we're confirmed, but whether we're doing the confirming. Are we confirming the gospel? And are we in the advance of the gospel 
and proclaiming it, showing people the way home to God. It's the overriding thing and the key to doing so many other good things, all of which are important. But this is the main thing. Here's a few suggestions which will reveal our hearts. If our answer to those questions is yes, partnering, confirming, advancing, proclaiming, I suspect, first, we'll have a prayer list. And we'll be praying intentionally for people to come home to God. And we'll be encouraging one another in this if we're in a prayer partnership or a triplet or a home group, praying not just about our personal issues, but for our friends and indeed strangers we meet to point them on the way home to God. Secondly, I suspect we'll be getting up every day and praying something like this. I mentioned it to you before, an Australian friend of mine who said that he prayed every morning, God, will you bring someone to me today to speak about you and please don't be subtle with me. Typically Australian. And thirdly, I suspect we'll be inviting people, people who are not yet believers, through events and our community ministries and the men's weekend and the festivals like Christmas coming up and our anniversaries to take just that next step, which for them might be a link in the chain, just that next step on the discovery of the way home to God. And then we will be part of the advance of the gospel. <laughs>